welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we discuss the Electoral College, the system in our country that determines who becomes president. It's become a popular topic in the news and trendy to attack the Electoral College as outdated. So what should we do? Do we need to modernize our system so that a national popular vote determines who leads this country? Or are there important reasons why our founders put the Electoral College in place? Fortunately, we have an expert on today to break it all down. Trent England is joining us. Trent is the director of Save Our States, is an expert on the Electoral College, and regularly testifies against the national popular vote as bills come up in various state legislatures around the country. From NBC News to NPR affiliates to BuzzFeed News, Trent is a sought-after commentator on presidential elections. He has written for The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Daily Wire, among others, and is a contributor to two books, The Heritage Guide to the Constitution and One Nation Under Arrest. He previously hosted the Trent England Show and has guest hosted for Ben Shapiro. Trent, so good to have you on today. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here, Beverly. So since you've hosted your own radio show before, you can give me tips if there's anything I need to change. So I'm glad we have a, an expert radio host and podcast star on here as well. Um, but to just kind of start us off today, I, I thought we would just start from the beginning. Let's talk about the Electoral College. What is it? How does it work? Um, break it down for us. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's not as confusing as some people think, I, I hope. Uh, and, and I usually explain it this way. I mean, the Electoral College is it's like a pop up Congress that exists to do just one thing, which is to elect the president of the United States. And, and just like Congress, uh, right, these are these are actual elected officials. Presidential electors are real people. They're elected officials elected in the state. And when, when we think about a presidential election, you know, we usually just think right past all of that. You know, it'd be like thinking about Congress, but just thinking about the laws that they pass. I mean, that's the end result. But but there is this process that has to happen. And uh, and so, you know, here in Oklahoma, where I live, uh, the, the political parties, the Democrats, the Republicans, and the Libertarians are on the ballot in 2020. So they will they will each get together at a state party convention next year, they will nominate people to be their their presidential electors, and uh, in the case of Oklahoma, it's it's seven because each state has the same number of presidential electors and electoral votes as they have in Congress. So we have five members of the U.S. House and, of course, two senators. So we get seven electoral votes. Uh, and if the Republicans win Oklahoma next year in the presidential race, which uh, is a is a is a pretty safe bet in in red Oklahoma. Uh, then the the Republican nominees will become Oklahoma's presidential electors, and they will go on to cast uh, Oklahoma's official uh, official votes for president. Um, so, I mean, again, it, it it's sort of complicated. I mean, it's more complicated than just having a direct election, uh, but it is just like Congress, and and that's not that's not a mistake. That's that's the reason why it, it uh, uh, was created. The founders liked the compromise that created our Congress in the Constitution. And when they got to figuring out how to elect a president, they said, hey, let's just let's use that compromise. Let's respect states. Let's give a little boost to the smallest states and keep the power down in the states, not put the power in Washington, D.C. 
and uh, and they came up with our electoral college, which we've used with with very minor modification since the very beginning of our country, since George Washington. Now, isn't it true that the electors, they can change who they want to vote for? So there's nothing tying them to cast a vote for a certain individual. Is is that the case? Yeah, that, that is true and was just reaffirmed by the Tenth Circuit uh, federal court out in Denver um, just just said, hey, look, you know, these these are elected officials. They can vote how they want. Of course, the reality is they're nominated by a political party. So while every once in a while we see presidential electors, and we saw more of this in 2016 um, than, than we had in recent memory, you know, we'll see them saying, well, I want to send a message. And so I'm going to cast my electoral vote, you know, not for Hillary Clinton, but for Bernie Sanders or somebody else. Um, it's it's typically only to send a message, right? These are partisans. They want their party's nominee to take office. Um, so the, while they can exercise their own judgment, the, the system is actually pretty predictable. And you talked a little bit about just the founders and why they wanted to do this. But I know that there there's also we, we have some information talking about the fear that they have as far as having a pure democracy, that we don't have a pure democracy in the states. Why was there a fear of that? Yeah, so I mean, one way to think about it is is the most the most undemocratic parts of the Constitution are our Bill of Rights, right? I mean, you know, every check and balance, every limit on government power, every every clause in the Bill of Rights, all of that is checking the power, um, not just of politicians, but of majorities in our country to do things. We don't really, you know, we believe that democracy is a way to make decisions, a way to elect officials. Uh, but democracy doesn't determine right or wrong, and there are things that are more important than democracy, like protecting individual rights, like having a stable political system. Uh, and and so, yeah, the, the American founders were very wary of anything that looked like pure democracy. And uh, at the Constitutional Convention, actually, James Madison stood up talking about presidential elections, and he said, he said, look, you know what? A, a direct popular vote sounds really good. And Madison basically says, hey, look, you know, in theory, I could go for that, right? Because it, it, it sounds simple and uh, it's easy to understand. But the problem, Madison said, is that in practice, in real life, the way it would actually work is that the biggest cities would just be in control all the time and nobody else would really have a voice. And, and the funny thing is, you know, James Madison was concerned about two states uh, and, and really two two urban areas, one of them being New York City. And that hasn't changed. Right. I mean, New York City is, is still uh, the, the, the big city in the country, you know, one of our, our, our biggest cities in the country and, uh, you know, still has tremendous political power. Uh, you know, we could add to that Los Angeles and, and Chicago now. Uh, and, and the other for Madison was Virginia. You know, Virginia was a very populous state. And, of course, you know, Virginia in the D.C. area still has uh, quite a quite a bit of political power. So, you know, James Madison, uh, you know, almost 250 years ago, uh, recognized some of uh, some of the same problems that we would run into today if we just had a big national election. Now, of course, the 
controversy over the Electoral College usually picks up if the national popular vote um, is large or so it goes to one candidate, but the Electoral College actually goes for another candidate. So there have only been five U.S. presidents who've won the Electoral College without receiving the most votes nationwide. So most recently, the current president, President Donald J. Trump in 2016, you had George W. Bush in 2000, but it had been since 1888 prior to that, Benjamin Harrison, then you had Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876, and John Quincy Adams in 1824. So are you finding that this is a topic of conversation just because it's happened now twice since 2000 and that it went in the way of the Republicans against uh, a Democratic, against the Democrat? Is that why we're seeing this? I mean, certainly there's partisan sour grapes that that are a big part of this. Nobody likes to lose. And it's human nature when you when you lose a contest uh, to to question, you know, well, maybe the rules just weren't fair. And so we, we hear that from Democrats. And it's it, it's it's understandable. Right. I mean, they would rather have a set of rules that made it easier for them to win with their current political coalition, which is centered on the big cities. And so, you know, if, if we did away with the Electoral College, that would that would obviously make their make it a lot easier for them to win without reaching beyond the big cities very much. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a big part of it. I, I think we also have a just a challenge in our country that a lot of people don't they've forgotten the importance of checks and balances and limits on power. And I think a lot of Americans have gotten so used to our country being very successful, and we we haven't done a great job of teaching history. That people think, well, you know, we we could just we just simplify all this. Let's, you know, instead of trying to to learn about the electoral college and understand why this is a good thing, let's just throw it out and do something simpler. And you know, people people have forgotten the the lessons of history that our founders knew so well. And I want to let everybody know that's listening that. Independent Women's Forum has some great resources on this. If you go to IWF.org, there is a link to an Electoral College legal brief. And also, if you want to take a quiz, it's kind of fun. You should take the quiz after this podcast. You can see how well you understand elections and the Electoral College. So a couple of quizzes on that. Do check it out. But Trent, I want to turn to really some of the recent attacks we're hearing about the Electoral College, most recently by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who has called this racist, um, she calls it a scam. Um, we're The narrative on this is going to a new level. What do you say to people who claim that this is a racist system? Well, you, you know, this has become, uh, for some people, the, the laziest way for them to attack whatever they don't like in our Constitution, right? I mean, you know, she's not out there claiming that uh, First Amendment freedom of speech is racist. But of course, you know, the First Amendment was added to the Constitution by the, the founding generation right after they approved the Constitution. I mean, she's not claiming that the House of Representatives is is racist. Um, you know, they, they pick and choose whatever they don't like in the Constitution they claim is racist because it's easier than thinking. And, and, and that's really the, the, the problem. I mean, if you go back and look at the politics that created the Constitution, of course, there, there was politics and there was uh, compromise. Uh, the, the reality is that the states and the areas they were trying to protect with the Electoral College were not all in the South. They weren't all in the North. Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the, the big states 
that were a concern. One was in the South, one was Virginia, uh, the other was in the was in the North, was New York, and and so it, it just you know the, the claim that the electoral college is somehow racist just doesn't make a lot of sense. And and actually, um, Vernon Jordan, who some people will remember, prominent uh, African American Democrat back in the 1970s, uh, a- actually commented on the fact that you know from his point of view, the electoral college often worked to to help African Americans because it you know it 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 focused the election in such a way that uh, at least what he believed in the 1960s and 70s was that it, it was making uh African Americans more important in the democratic coalition than they would otherwise be so you know this is this is politics it's easy for some people to say it's racist but uh if they really look at the history i think they'll discover that that uh, if anything um, the opposite is the case Actually, you know, Beverly, you mentioned a couple of those elections after the Civil War, 1876 and 1888. And the the reality in 1876 is that the Electoral College prevented the Democrats from stealing the White House because the the Democrats only won the most popular votes in that that election, probably. Most most people think this is true. I think it's it's actually pretty obvious looking at the, the previous election results. The Democrats won the popular vote because they had gotten so good at racist vote suppression in the South. And the Electoral College was able to contain some election disputes in, in that election and, uh, and prevent racist vote suppression from actually winning the White House in 1876. And then and it, it forced the Democrats over a series of elections to reach out in the North because they needed to win some Northern and some of the new Western states they couldn't just, you know, run up the score in the deep south through fraud or, or legitimately. Uh, they actually had to reach out further, and it forced the Democrats to be a national coalition party and not just be kind of the the post Civil War, uh, uh, you know, sort of Ku Klux Klan affiliated political organization that that might have otherwise been the case. Well, I know with your organization, you're fighting to keep the Electoral College in place because of even the historical examples you just mentioned there and why it's so important. But yet you do have people who are still waging a war against the Electoral College. So is part of this trying to get it changed prior to November 2020? And if so, what type of ways do they want to change us? What are the what, what are the two fronts they're waging this on? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because a lot of people tell me, well, hey, look, they just can't do this. They'd have to amend the Constitution, and that's really hard, and it's not going to happen. And and that's you know that is that is correct in the short run, at least. Um, it's hard to amend the Constitution. We can thank the founders for that. And uh, and and so that so while there are amendments that have been proposed in Congress, they're not they're not going to go anywhere in the short run. Uh, but the strategy that they're that they're using, and the reason I created Save Our States ten years ago, is because after the 2000 election, uh, some some very wealthy Al Gore supporters got together and said, "We want to find another way to get rid of the Electoral College that's easier than amending the Constitution." And what they came up with is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, or people just call it NPV, uh, National Popular Vote. And here's how it works. And this is really, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta have to give them, them credit. This is very clever. Um, state legislatures have, under our Constitution, uh, a lot of latitude in, in how these presidential electors get selected. 
And so national popular vote is is a piece of state legislation where states can say, hey, we're just going to ignore how people vote in our state. We're not going to elect our presidential electors based on what the people of, of Colorado think or or New Mexico or wherever. Uh, we're going to elect our presidential electors based on the national popular vote. So if you know people think this through, if enough states do that, then it it basically hijacks the electoral college and changes it from being a state-based system to being a direct national election. I mean, so again, very clever. Now they put a trigger in it. It doesn't go into effect just because you know New York has passed this. Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, you know, California, um, there are 15 states that have passed this, but it doesn't take effect in any of those states unless they get enough states that they would actually control the outcome of the election. And they get enough states where they would have 270 electoral votes or more, and that's a majority that controls the outcome of presidential elections. So that's that's what I've been primarily working against because not only would they hijack the electoral college and and uh, you know basically eliminate all the benefits of the electoral college, uh, you know keeping power over elections at the state level and preventing regionalism and all these things that the electoral college uh, does for us, um, it's also a really unstable way to change our election system. Um, and it's actually just reading something written by one of the attorneys who came up with this whole national popular vote scheme. And he said, well, you know, what we really want is to just create so much instability that people will then amend the Constitution and throw the whole thing out. So that's that's really their end game. But we have to you know, we have to fight against this national popular vote interstate compact in in states around the country and, and help state legislatures understand just what a what a dangerous and short-sighted idea it would be to to get rid of the electoral college. And in your opinion, you mentioned the states that it that you, they've already seen success in. What is the likelihood that they would be able to get rid of the electoral college this way? Is it something where you say in the near future this could happen if if organizations like you aren't fighting against it? I mean, yeah, the the, the challenging thing is that you know the, the electoral college is it's sort of obscure. And uh, it, it is, on the one hand, it, it seems like a national issue. On the other hand, they're doing this in state legislatures. And so there, there isn't really anybody else out there um, working against this in, in, in all the states across the country, which is what we do. Uh, I mean, we've managed to stop this in, in state after state. And I mean, it, it, it's true, if we weren't there, this already would have taken effect. Uh, if you know, not only by 2020, it may have taken effect before 2016 if we hadn't been been doing this work for the last decade. Uh, so you know, it, it's a real it, it's a real threat, and we are very concerned that uh, you know they they know they probably you know, it's very unlikely they could get this done at this point before 2020. Um, but we have seen their whole campaign really gearing up this year. They, they forced it through in Colorado, New Mexico, Delaware, and Oregon. Um, now, Colorado, thankfully, we have got it on the ballot to repeal it next year. Um, so Colorado may repeal national popular vote next year, which would be a, a great win for our Constitution. Uh, but uh, but now Save Our States, is uh, we, we are doing everything we can to fight this and always looking for allies in, in the states who uh, – 
who want to help us educate legislators about about just how important our system of states and our constitution are. And just in wrapping up, final question for you. I'm just curious if somebody out there is listening and they say, I want to be an elector. I want to be able to cast a vote for my party. How does somebody become that? Where, where, where do you yeah. go? What do you do for that? That's a, that's a great question. So those those people come from their political party. So if somebody, you know, if somebody's a Democrat, then they need to get involved in their 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 Democrat Party politics. If they're a Republican, they need to get involved with their Republican Party. Oftentimes that starts at the county level. Um, well, pretty much always starts at the county level or even below that at the precinct level where people show up to those meetings and uh, get involved and and make themselves known to, to people and volunteer in the party. And once the state, uh, you know, once the state political party conventions happen next year, then they can say, Hey, I want to run for this. And, uh, uh, and the parties will actually, you know, they'll, they'll vet people because they want to make sure that people are going to vote for their, their party's nominee. Um, and then they'll hold a vote at the, at the state political party conventions next year and, and nominate people and, if your party, uh, you know, if your party wins the presidential race in your state, uh, then you get to be a presidential elector. Well, there you have it. Now people know how to go and do it. So, Trent, thank you so much for letting us know how we can do that if we'd want to, but also for all the work that your organization is doing and that you personally are doing. And it's a pleasure to have you on today. So thank you. It's been my pleasure, Beverly. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us. If you have more interest in the topic we discussed, you can, of course, check out Trent England and the work of Save Our States at saveourstates.com. That's saveourstates.com. And do check out iwf.org for all issues related to the Electoral College. I also wanted to let you know of a great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, that is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for problematic women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help, and we'd love it if you shared this episode. And let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum. Thanks for listening.